0: Let's see what the stew has for us today.
1: Welcome to the GnomeCast, Gnome Stew's Tabletop Gaming Advice Podcast. Here we talk with the other gnomes about gaming things to avoid becoming part of the stew, so I guess we'd better be good. This episode is brought to you by our awesome Patreon backers like the boisterous Bob Quack, the bountiful Bruce Cordell, and the dauntless Doug Roz. Today we have myself, Ange, along with Jared and JT, and we're going to talk about player roles. Not what characters they play, but the tasks they can do to help facilitate the game. Before we dive into that main topic, though, let's ask our get to know a own question. The three of us have been gaming for a very long time, long enough that I know that there are some patterns to the types of characters we play. So what is the most common archetype you find yourself playing in games, and why? And JT, I'm going to start with you.
2: All right, so I, I guess I have two, actually. So if I'm hitting a brand new game that I've never played before, which is kind of rare these days, or a system that I've just never seen, I tend to go for the bruiser, just the the, the big, burly, bee-bustled fighter that's going to stand in front of the bad guy and trade shots. Because those characters are super easy to play uh, mechanically, mm-hmm. right? And that lets me delve in deeper into the... Usually, yes, usually. Uh, at least at first level or the equivalent thereof, right? You, you're starting out pretty simple. I rolled a hit, oop, I missed, or I rolled a hit, here's my D8 damage. And that's about it. So it lets me learn the surrounding mechanics without having a very complex character the other thing that i do is i love playing magic users clerics wizards sorcerers whatever i'm a spellcaster of types Mm -hmm. that way i can learn the magic system that's usually my second character in a particular game mechanic is let's get the whizbane going and figure out how the the spellcasting and the magic system works so that's kind of my two right there that i go to
1: that makes sense how about you Jared?
0: So, um, this is funny because I played medics in two sessions for free RPG day, uh, (laughs) recently. (laughs) So, yeah, I tend to play a lot of, because, you know, I'm mainly a GM most of the time, I tend to play a lot of support characters. So, a lot of clerics, bards, medics, that sort of thing. I generally don't like to be someone that's going to be in the leadership position just because it feels weird for me to, you know, tell other players what the most likely course of action should be after running games for so long. Although I do like being the character that can point out sometimes, hey, if we do that thing you just proposed, um, we might get shot in the face. Uh... (laughs) (laughs) The other thing that I kind of like is if I know something about a setting and maybe a lot of the other people at the table don't know a lot about the setting, I like playing a character that has a reason to know those things. And you ran into this when we were, <laughs> yeah. you know, playing our Storm King Thunder.
1: It was awesome.
0: <laughs> um, and that way, it's just like, it's not me accidentally knowing too much and not being able to filter that out. It's actually me being able to say, hey, I know because I've read these ancient, you know, legends, blah, 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 and I can throw all that stuff in. What about you, And?
1: So, I tend to go for the agile stabby types. Uh, I
0: really I love yeah, yeah
1: yeah i I love my rogues. they tend to be the first you know like like j t tends to enter a system by looking at how to play the bruisers and the fighters. I tend to look at them. how do I play the stealthy, agile rogue type character, and I actually haven't gotten to play them as often as I usually would have in the last like. 10 years or so, usually because I'm like, oh, that's my thing, so I'm going to let somebody else do it. And therefore, I haven't done it in a long time, so the character I'm playing in your Midgard campaign, (laughs) Kazina, is my first rogue in a very long time. The other thing I tend to do is almost all of my characters, regardless of the system, regardless of whether or not they have an alignment system, tend to be chaotic good.
0: It's (laughs) like
1: I... I play games because I want to make the world a better place, and sometimes you can't do that in real life as easily as you can in a game. So, in a game, I'm always I I never play an evil character. I never play, I rarely even play a nebulous character. I'm playing a character that wants to make the world a better place. And I think those are probably the two most common archetypes I end up hitting on. Very cool. So, moving into our main topic. JT recently had an article on this topic of player roles, so we thought it would be a good idea to bring to the podcast. What are the roles that your players can take on to help facilitate the game? Depending upon your group, these can be very formal roles agreed upon by the group, or they might be informal things that the players just do because it's something they enjoy and they fall into doing. JT, why don't you give us the quick rundown on your
2: article? All right, I'm going to ramble off the list and then we can delve into what each one does. Going down the list, we got a lore master, a loot keeper, a kill counter, a cartographer, faction tracker, quests custodian, initiative coordinator, and uh, also added into the list cat herder. And uh, I tacked onto the end of the list as well, sustenance provider. Uh, so that's kind of <laughs> your your player roles at the table there. And again, these are what the players are doing, not what their characters are doing. So. So circling back to the top of the list, the lore master, they keep the notes, the player notes for mm-hmm. what is done, you know, who they've encountered, where they've gone, not what they've killed and not what treasure they've collected because that's different roles, and I like to split them out that way so that not one player is overwhelmed with keeping track of everything. So like the lore master is doing the people, places and things and events. Jumping into the Loot Keeper, that's obviously what, what loot has the group acquired. Instead of trying to split treasure after every encounter, every combat, every treasure hoard they find, one person writes down everything, and then typically at the end of the session, or maybe the end of the storyline, when they've had some downtime or they're heading back to the city, then the Loot Keeper does the appropriate math to figure out you know how many coins each person gets, how many gems we have. What kind of gems are they? Because sometimes in a magic system, that that matters. You know, the whole hundred gold piece pearl for an identified kind of thing. And they also keep track of valuable items that have been found up to and including magic items. And whether or not they've been identified. And once identified, they make notes on what the item actually is. The kill counter helps me out by keeping track of what they've killed and how many of those. Pretty straightforward, right? So at the end of a session, I'll look at the kill counter and go, hey, how many goblins did I throw at you again? Because sometimes it's dynamic. If the fight's too easy, a few more goblins run into the fight. If the fight's too hard, maybe some goblins run away. I don't know. And I don't tend to keep track of that in the session. So I have a player do that for me. And that really, really helps. It, It reduces the load off me as game master. Next up is Cartographer. Obviously, they do the maps. Whether it's Overland or Dungeon or both, really depends on the desires of the players on how detailed they want to get. Sometimes I don't have a Cartographer, and that's okay because it's really not on me to keep track of whether they've gone left or right or not. I mean, I do keep track of that myself because I got to know what they've explored. But if they forget whether they've gone left or right, well... That's on them, <laughs> you know. So I don't worry about that one too much. Uh, that's for their convenience. The faction tracker is in uh, D and D Five O. They've introduced factions. You know, it, it was a big deal in the Dragon Heist campaign.
1: We mostly ignored it, but <laughs> uh,
2: actually, I, I did. I incorporated it pretty deeply, to be honest with you, because I had a player keeping track of the factions for me. Uh, in that particular campaign, the killed counter and the faction tracker were the same person, same individual. So one person can do multiple jobs. And the faction tracker is if you have whatever five, six, seven, eight different "quote unquote" NPC factions the groupers is, is interacting with, you need to keep track of their attitudes. And this I make pretty open. I don't I don't keep a whole lot of this is not secret knowledge. If the party has upset the plans of the Zentarum. I kinda let them know, hey, your 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 reputation with the Zentarum has gone down. And my players are really good about not metagaming too much. They're like, oh hey, we we you know upset the Zentarum. Let's go do that again. <laughs> <laughs> so so they they do that quite often. They 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 find it fun to do that. The quest custodian, this is usually also wrapped into the role of the lore master as well, but it can be a separate uh role, separate person. And this is what quests or missions or objectives have I put in front of them, who gave them the quest or mission, what's the potential reward for completing, and which ones are done. Because I I tend to dangle multiple carrots in front of the the party and let them pick which one they want to bite into, and then I kind of run with it from there. So the quest custodian helps me know what plot hooks have I placed in front of them because I have my own list and some of those have yet to be exposed to the players and I'll forget kind of which ones I've told them about or introduced them to. So I let them keep track of that. And I'll just ask the quest custodian, Hey, can I see your notes real quick? And he'll hand me the notebook or whatever. And I'll skim it and go, okay, that's what I've introduced you to. So I, I have an idea of you know where they're at in the storyline. Initiative coordinator. This is huge. I have enough going on as I've already said, you know, behind the screen. Uh, Having a player keep track of each individual's initiative slot is huge. Connor in our game typically falls into this role because he has the Pathfinder magnetic white erase board with the little things that you can move around and all that. Mm -hmm. If you don't have one, go find it, get one. I have the Starfinder variant, same thing, just themed differently. It's an amazing at the table utility, and I think it runs like twenty bucks or something like that. It it's I so have worth it. Somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and I've been talking for a while. You mentioned cat herder. Why don't you why don't you delve into that one?
1: So the cat herder is generally the game scheduler. Now sometimes with some groups, this is going to be the GM. The GM is in charge of setting up when the group plays, when the group in several of the different groups I'm part of, it ends up being that somebody who is not necessarily the GM takes on this role, regardless of whether they're running or not. For my Saturday games, I am the cat herder. I make sure, you know, everyone knows which game we're playing on which day, just checks in with everybody to make sure everyone's available. Because as much as we've agreed to play on Saturdays, people forget to let us know (laughs) when they've got something coming up. And And all of that. And I've found that the best way to keep my group on track is at the beginning of the week, I will send out an email saying, hey, we're supposed to be gaming. This is going to be Scott's Dungeon of the Mad Mage game. You know, let us know if you're going to be there. And that way it starts a conversation where we get most people to pipe up whether or not they have a conflict or not. And that helps a lot. And then there's the, the, the last one you provided, which was Sustenance Provider, which is, you know, somebody's got to bring the snacks if you're playing in person.
2: <laughs> yep, yep, yeah. And, and, and oftentimes that falls on the host. It doesn't have to be, but whoever, you know, whoever's house you're playing at, it typically falls to them, but it doesn't have to be that way. One thing we did at a game, oh gosh, Pathfinder game many years ago, was I was running the game, so the host would provide snacks for everybody. A lot of people would bring snacks. Like the host would provide a snack, and everybody would bring additional snacks. And then the host would order pizza, and everybody would chip in for the pizza, except for me because they were like, "Hey, you're running the game. You're putting in more effort and time and energy. Free pizza for the game master. Doesn't have to be that way." But I was super appreciative of the fact that you know I, I didn't have to spend uh, whatever three bucks a week on my fair share of the pizza cost.
1: I have found, like, so none of the groups I have played in have ever made these roles formal. Same. They've all been very informal roles, and I have found that I'll, sometimes some of them get picked up by multiple people. For example, the Loremaster, it is generally myself and Woody who do the most note-taking to jot down the names of NPCs that we've dealt with and various things. So whenever something comes up in game that everyone is like, oh, wait, what is, there's something about this. The two of us can quickly go through our notes and be like, oh, that's so-and-so or such-and-such yep. and get the game back on track. And I find it helps to have, especially with master, it helps to have a couple of different people doing it because they'll pick up on different things.
2: That's wise. You know, like,
1: in one of our D&D campaigns, Woody's character was much more closely aligned with the church, so he would make notes on the NPCs that were involved in the church, whereas my character was a little closer to the nobility, so I would have notes on them that he wouldn't have. And like that ended up working as a really good dynamic for that group.
2: Very cool. Yeah, the the only two roles that I... I hate to use the word require, but that I really need at the table are the loot keeper and the initiative coordinator. Everybody else is all the other roles are optional. Pick it up and do it. If you want to, that kind of thing. But the, the way I run my games is when I throw the treasure hoard over the GM screen at the players, I'm done with it. I'm not keeping track of that. <laughs> if it, you know, if you, if you kill the rats and you find the 3000 copper pieces, it's out of my mind at that point. That That is done and gone, and if you guys don't make note of it, well, I guess she didn't pick up the 3,000 copper pieces.
1: I actually have a funny note on the Loot Keeper. I call it the accountant,
2: yes. and
1: I tend to fall into that role in most of my games. Uh, most of my games where stuff matters, I will end up keeping track of stuff. And in Jared's Midgard <laughs> campaign, we found a bag of holding and I was suddenly very upset because the other players didn't automatically give it to me because in my other Saturday groups, they always, oh, give Ange the bag of holding. She's the accountant. She's keeping track of all the stuff anyway. There you go. And I was very much like, but, but wait, it's, it's shouldn't my job. I have the bag of holding? <laughs> what about you, Jared? What do you find, you know, either yourself doing or. That helps you as a GM to have your players
2: doing.
0: the The funny thing is, first off, I don't know if anyone has um, seen that that meme that goes around about like the GM notes from last session, and it's something like "goblin beer something."
2: <laughs> somebody's oh, talking about. Oh, I have about. seen yeah. that. Yes, it's like three non-sequitur words. Yeah, I,
0: I actually. From the GM side, I actually do take a lot more notes, especially like, and just seeing some of these, like, I'll have spreadsheets set up, you know, where I'll add in NPCs that have shown up and things like that. But as a player, I tend to take notes like that meme. you know, (laughs) it's just like, coffee, yeah, coffee's really important. And then like the next (laughs) session, I'll be like, hey, guys, what did we what did we run into that had coffee? Uh (laughs) But um, one of the roles that I think I've seen at some of my tables that hasn't come up here, which is kind of interesting, is the um, what I would probably call the assistant director. And that is the person that is, from the player perspective, telling everybody, I know this doesn't seem like a good idea, but for the genre we're playing in, it seems like this is the type of thing we would probably do. Which is really interesting, and it's kind of great from the uh, GM's perspective, because sometimes, no matter how much a game helps you to present a particular genre, if your players do not play into that genre, it doesn't matter what kind of rules you have. Mm -hmm. It's not going to do anything. So having that player to every once in a while say, hey, I know this doesn't seem like a good idea, but this is totally what someone would do in this type of story. That's actually really, really great.
1: <laughs> I was actually thinking about that in relation to... So I play every Saturday. It's technically two groups that alternate between Saturdays. Mm. And it's, it's mostly the same people with a couple of different people in each group. And I have found that despite being mostly the same players, in the one group, I have the hardest time with them engaging with the genre. Like, they will, pull, they will avoid engaging with the plot because, well, that sounds dangerous. I'm not going to do that. And it's like, big damn <laughs> okay. heroes, you're supposed to engage with the dangerous stuff. Whereas the mix of people in the other Saturday group is much more likely to be like, yeah, let's get into it. Mm-hmm. And it really is the, the players being willing to engage with the genre. You know, rather than thinking on a, well, what would I do if I were in this situation? Well, one, you wouldn't be in this situation. (laughs) (laughs) Two, it doesn't matter what you would do in this situation. It matters what your character would do in this situation based on the genre. And having that player that can be like, hey, this is what we, you know, based on the type of story Mm -hmm. in this game, this is what we should be engaging with.
0: Yeah, I think the first time I really noticed it coming up in a game was when we were playing our uh, Disney Princesses and Ravenloft game, (laughs) and we would, um, one of the players would point out things like, okay, if we're thinking about this as, as adventurers, we would probably do this, but we're all from places where all of this stuff will work out. We're going to assume if we go into this situation, we'll be able to fix it and everyone will be happy. So let's go into the situation that we know we can't fix as players and then be horrified (laughs) by whatever (laughs) happens because that was a lot of that game was just all of our characters getting traumatized by how much worse (laughs) things kept getting when it should have actually all worked out in the
2: end. (laughs) Nice.
1: You're supposed to have a good closing number and that's it.
2: (laughs) Everybody sings a song and goes home. Yeah, this this is why it's working.
0: (laughs) Oh, um, the other thing that I was gonna bring up that's kind of interesting is, uh, JT, when you mentioned the cartographer, that is definitely something that is different depending on the type of game that you're playing. Oh, absolutely. This is a thing. This is actually one of those rules where I don't think as many people notice it. But if you play um, fifth edition D and D, that is actually now quantified in there. If one character is saying that they are mapping. In theory, they map. Like, they aren't... They The player doesn't have to map. It's just they're keeping track of wherever they've been. And if they need to backtrack, in theory, you're supposed to let them backtrack to wherever they've been as long as they designate someone to be a cartographer. Okay.
1: I believe there's rules in there that the player that has announced that their character is mapping, mm-hmm. they don't get to make passive yeah, perception they, they checks can't use on various things. And... That makes because,
0: sense. yeah... And it's really interesting compared to older versions of D&D because it's basically just saying, hey, if you've been to a place, you can say, let's go back to this place. And it's automatic as long as somebody thought to say, I'm mapping. Right.
1: The other variable there, too, is in person versus virtual gaming. Mm-hmm. Because in virtual gaming, you got the map right there. Yeah. You can see where you've been. I mean, yep. depending upon which virtual tabletop you're using you may not be able to see, like, previous levels of the dungeon. You may only see the section you're in, but it's right there. It's yep, much it is more right video game-like in that yeah.
2: regard. Yeah, one thing that, also to help your cartographer, tell them, it's a little bit of metagaming, but it really helps, especially if they actually are making a map, tell them, okay, take your graph paper, rotate it, landscape, start in the bottom right corner because we're going to be working up and to the left, or whatever the directions Mm -hmm. are. Right. I had one game master that refused to... We were doing overland, a lot of wilderness travel, and he refused to give us an orientation point, like where to start on the physical sheet of paper I had in front of me. So we ended up with this really weird map. So I just started dead center. I just took a guess, right? I, I, (laughs) I don't know. Take the average, start dead center. So we travel a lot of north and a lot of west while well, I hit the edge of my sheet of paper. So instead of grabbing another sheet of and it wasn't like, it was like 2 third, it was on the north edge of the paper, about two-thirds towards the west. It, it, so I just wrote an A on that and then flipped the graph paper onto the back on the blank side and drew an A and started mapping from there. And then we hit another edge. So I drew a B and flipped the paper over again, found an empty area of the scrap paper, wrote a B, so you had to, like, flip the graph paper multiple times. <laughs> it ended up being this really cryptic map that made total sense if you knew that A went to A, and B went to B, and C went to C. But yeah, it, it, it was it was like a puzzle-type thing that you would hand to the, make as a game master and hand the uh, players. Yeah,
0: that's what I was going to say. That would be fun to take that and then put it in yeah. another game and see if somebody right? could figure it out. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I I so wish I still had that. Maybe I do. It might be in a folder behind (laughs) me somewhere. But yeah, when we finished the campaign, and the dragon cheated, by the way. I just want to put that on record. Um, (laughs) We had to find a new trade route from east to west across the mountain range. And there was no passable route, so we went around the mountains. Well, the red dragon just used its fire breath to destroy... Like a mountain, and made a new pass, and he got there first, so he got the ten thousand gold reward. I, I, I still say the dragon cheated. <laughs> so <laughs> the
1: last the last time I played a game where the cartography really mattered was we were playing Kingmaker, basically the Pathfinder mm-hmm. adventure path for Kingmaker, and we really only played the first part of it, but that was actually a lot of fun because we ha- we were given the uh, the hex map. And you know, told mm-hmm. this is the uh the 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 little shop that's you start at. You know, the the oh, place yeah, the you trade, start at the, the
0: trade post. Yeah.
1: yeah, the trade post. Here's the trade post. This is your base of operations for starting this campaign. Where do you go from here? And like that gave us the kind of like, okay, we're exploring south, but we can go east. We can go west. You know, and that was that was actually a lot of fun because. We took turns trading the map around, and people would sketch in the, okay, here's the river and this hex, and here's this and this hex, and, oh, there's kobolds over here.
0: I was going to say, I think there's another role that I sometimes see in some of my uh, players, and this one can be tricky because it can be invaluable, but then people can overplay it, and that is the trainer, the person that knows the rules well enough that if someone else in the group doesn't know the rules, they can help them along with it. Yep, And the important part about that role is that person that knows the rules really needs to ask the person, what do you
2: want to do? Not here's the optimal thing you should do. Right. Right. That That's huge. Yeah. We 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 have that in our group as well. The guy that does the initiative tracking, Connor, uh, he just graduated high school. So being a teenager, he has a million free hours,
0: whereas everybody <laughs> else
2: at, at the table is uh, uh, middle-aged, right? And so, so we, we have like two free hours a week. But he's our system master, Mm -hmm. uh, because he has the time to read and reread and memorize. Plus, he's a brilliant, brilliant guy. So he he probably reads the books once and just knows the rules. If not knows them, he knows like where roughly in the book to just quickly Mm -hmm. flip to and find the rules, which is huge. I remember doing that back in high school. Don't have the time for that anymore. But uh, he is very good about explaining the options without choosing them for you.
1: It was really cool when I was at Origins because I played Mutants and Masterminds game. And I have a couple of friends that are, they're masters of this system. And one of them was running this game and one of them was playing this game. And we had a guy sit down at the table who signed up because it was a Legion of Superheroes game. He didn't know anything about the system. He just knew that this is the Legion of Superheroes (laughs) and he's going to play this game. And immediately Jason was like, have a seat beside me and I'll explain to you, you know, like what you need to roll and what's that that's going to do. And it was, it helped a lot because it took the burden off of the GM to try and teach this player how the system worked. Whereas he already had an expert at the table who knew exactly how to Mm. like guide that player into the like, okay, what do you want to do? This is what this power does. This is what this power does. And, this is what this uh, advantage will do, and this is what how you use it, and
2: you know it, cool. it just
1: helped a lot. Mm-hmm. And of course, at Origins, I also saw the exact opposite of that, which was the player who's like, "You need to do this." Yeah, oh. and it was kind of funny because there were two characters at the table that had similar powers. One of them was this kind of busybody player telling everyone how to play their character. And the other player with a character that had similar powers picked up on it. So he very much refused to use his (laughs) powers in the way that she thought he should be using them. Which just infuriated her. Sure, But it was like, it dropped, it basically, that behavior took a game from being an excellent game to being a good game. Yep. Like. It's just that one annoying factor that we couldn't get this player to stop trying to boss other players around that, you know, and it was like, why are you trying to, like, let them play their character. Yeah. Let them do their own thing. But it it really is invaluable to have the system expert at the table who can help facilitate other people figuring out how to play their character without Mm -hmm. telling them
2: how to play their character. And it speeds up the game, and it doesn't have to be the Game Master.
0: Yeah, that's actually an important point, because I ran, you know, DC Adventures for a year, which is based on Mutants and Masterminds 3rd Edition. I actually really liked the game system. I loved the DC universe, so I was having a lot of fun, but I actually kind of got burned out, because one of the players would not learn how things work. So he would come to me after every session, and say, well, with these new points, I want to be able to do blah, and then expect me to rebuild his character for him.
2: Uh And it was like,
0: I I can't keep doing this, and also doing my side of the game. This is your side of the game. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I tend to be
1: very very forgiving of players who don't necessarily understand the system, but there is a limit there. Mm -hmm. Players need to understand how their character works. Yep. You know, it's okay to ask questions, but if you are asking the same question a year into the campaign,
0: <laughs> you've
1: got a bit of a problem.
2: Yeah, I hard uh running a Pathfinder game, because after almost three years, the ranger in the party kept asking, what do I roll to hit? Like, which die? <sighs> after three years. <sighs> Granted, it was a monthly game, so I-, I let it go that long, because, you know, if it was a weekly game, I would have given the player maybe three months to pick it up. And I would have been like, I'm out. And and there were like two experienced players and five very new players. So I'm fortunately the experienced players were pitching in and helping out, but I was really teaching the game to five new players. Mm -hmm. Uh, And when I say new, I'm talking like new to role-playing and yeah, I probably shouldn't have picked Pathfinder (laughs) for for new players because it's such a crunchy system, but I knew it so well that it was mm. quote-unquote easy for me, right? So I figured it would be easy for them. Eh, all right, mistake <laughs> on my part. Mistake on my part. I should have gone with Fate or Savage Worlds or something mm. less crunchy, but yeah. But yeah, after three years of, do I roll this one to hit? And she'd point at her dice, and she usually pointed the D12, which, yeah, they're similar in size and shape, <laughs> but no, just a little to the left, yeah, that one, the D20. And and I just, I just couldn't do it anymore. Just couldn't do it anymore. So,
0: yeah. And I think that's one of those things that a lot of these player roles point back to is for a long time the kind of meta idea in RPGs is the GM will handle all of this stuff and I just need to show up with my character sheet. Yeah. And honestly, we're all at the table to have fun. The GM has their role in a traditional game that has a GM. So if other players need help or if there is other things that you could be doing players really need to be participants in that sort of thing and actively engaging with things so that everybody is keeping the game moving for everyone else
1: I try and I I've I've done a fair amount of thinking on this I try and be aware of each player's ability to dedicate time thought energy to the game is going to vary based on that person's circumstances and that person's interest level. Yep. And I have had to, like, take a step back and examine it. Like, I love gaming with this person, but this person is not going to be able to have the time and the energy to put into the game, to put a lot of thought into it outside of the game. Mm -hmm. So I have to accept that that player is going to come to the game And not necessarily have done other things that I might have done because I'm absolutely obsessed about this hobby. (laughs) So it's like you have to, you have to like judge where each player is. But again, at the same time, you need those players to at least put a modicum of effort into understanding how their character works and making sure they can facilitate the game. Moving forward, and then the characters, the players that are at our level of obsessed about this <laughs> hobby, can take on some of these extra roles to keep things moving. Like, I'm the accountant, I'm the cat herder. Uh, <laughs> you know, if I'm the host, I'm a sustenance provider. You know, I de- I'm definitely a lore master because I'm keeping notes on what's happening in the game. Again, I my notes are halfway between coherent and jared's coffee goblins you know magma you know i actually in a pre in a recent game i was looking at my notes and i'm like i have no idea what this line means and i read it out to the group and everyone was like i have no idea what that means either man i don't know what you were writing
0: down
2: yeah when i'm a player i tend to be lore master cartographer uh quest custodian and cat herder, cause I'm the organizational kind of guy. That's how my, mm-hmm. that's just how my brain works, right? Keeping everybody on the same page. We actually use Discord for our group and it works great for us. I've heard of people using Facebook groups, Slack, Discord, email. Group text messages, oh, that would drive me insane. Uh, <laughs> having my phone bing all the time, but yeah, um,
1: actually that's why I just silenced my phone. my teen d and d Instagram chat was blowing up oh yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah there's
2: there's a lot of there's a lot of avenues for cat herding these days, yeah, I have my
0: uh discord channel that I uh, set up that you know I have little separate groups for each, each game that I'm running, so cool, cool.
1: no, yeah, it works out pretty well.
2: Yeah, and somewhere deep in the archives, I wrote an article on how I take notes. Uh, I actually use my iPad and an app called Good Notes and an Apple Pencil. That way, I can do different color "quote unquote" ink and different color highlighting and uh, embed images and all sorts of stuff like that into my notes. So, like for a D and D five game that ran to ninth level, I took uh, twenty four pages of notes. And that's just one file that I have. That's not my character notes. That's <laughs> the campaign notes. <laughs> I have a different document that is the quest notes and a list of NPCs that we met, like where we met them, the con, like one or two words about context about where we met them. So I had multiple documents open in good notes at once. It's got a, t- it's like a browser it has tabs at the top. So I can easily flip between my character sheet, which I do digitally on the iPad, all that good stuff. So yeah. And that works for me. Uh, would it work for other people? I don't know. I, you know do do whatever works for you. Uh, one guy uses a little tiny little like three by five steno notepad for his notes because he wants to. It forces him to be as brief as he possibly can without writing a novel. Which that's my job as the lore master: is writing the novel. So
1: I think ultimately the the lesson here is: as a player, do what you can to help the GM. Facilitate the game Absolutely. and keep it running smooth. Yeah,
2: yeah, and if keeping track of your one character is near overwhelming for you, all right, keep track of your character. Don't don't take on extra roles. You know it, it, that's fine.
1: Yeah, let the people who enjoy keeping track of other stuff do that thing and just help out where you can, even if that's just bringing some cupcakes to gaming. <laughs> there you go. Any last words on player roles, or should we move out to our outro?
0: I'm good. Yeah, I think that's most of what I have to say about the topic.
1: Okay. This show is funded by the Gnome Studio Patreon. You too can be a Patreon backer by following the Patreon link on the Gnome Studio website to the Gnome Studio Patreon. This ad is brought to you by the Game Roomba. You got a game room that could use a little sprucing up? Give the Game Roomba a try. It'll keep the Cheeto crumbs off the floor and not complain about vacuuming up stray D4s and certainly not develop sentience to the point where it becomes a dictator of your game space. If you're enjoying the Cash, you'll probably, like many of the other Misdirected Mark shows, here's another one to check out.
2: Bonus experience! Ray and Monica are two old friends exploring gameplay and design through the lens of diversity, while also sharing some of the dumbest humor gaming has to offer.
1: (laughs) You can find all of us at GnomeStew.com, at GnomeStew on Twitter, and GnomeStew on Facebook. Jared and JT, is there any other sites you want to give a shout-out to? Jared, go!
0: See, I always feel selfish when I do this, but you can find my other reviews that don't show up on Gnome's Do at (laughs) whatdoiknowjr.com.
1: What about you,
2: JT? Uh, For me, the one-stop shop for all things me is my website, jtevans.net. Top right corner, you'll find links to all the various social medias that I'm on. I also want to give a shout-out to a book series, an urban fantasy series. There's currently four out. From my understanding, there's more to come. But it is by John R. Osborne, and it's the Milesian Accords. And it's what happens when the Fae win the right to b- live in the real world by winning a challenge to reverse the Milesian Accords, which banished them to the Fae world some hundreds of years ago. And it is a hoot. It, I, I just finished book four a couple of days ago. I had a blast all the way through. I gave every book five stars, so uh, which is kind of rare for awesome. me. So it's really good. How about you, Ange?
1: I don't really have anything to shout out today, so I I think we can get out of here. Do you guys uh, think we avoided the stew this week, or can we convince another player to take it on?
2: I'll check my notes. Well, I'm going to cover target for my way out, so. (laughs)
0: Gnomecast is hosted by Misdirected Mark Productions, the media arm of Encoded Designs.